Keep an eye on a Senate bill to remake federal acquisition. It's called the Agile Procurement Act, and it has bipartisan sponsorship. Its stated purpose, among other things, is to make it easier for the government to buy commercial goods and services. My next guest says the bill scratches an itch that seems to come up every 25 years or so. Federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen joins me now. And Larry, I guess it is a little strange to have a bill in the Senate to encourage the government to buy COTS, since hasn't that been policy for about 50 years? Uh, Tom, it's been policy since at least 1990 for the government to buy commercial off-the-shelf products. And in fact, we had a bill, uh, we had legislation in the mid-1990s in the form of the Clear Cohen Act that was the second bill in the 90s that passed to streamline IT acquisitions specifically. It's great to have a bill. Uh, I commend the sponsors for putting this bill in, but the people like me have seen this before, and I think we've got a lot of questions about what true impact it would have. Right. So it would somehow make it easier for the GSA and other large contract creators to give agencies greater ability to buy commercial. What does it specifically do? What would it change from what your reading shows? Well, I think the real way that this bill could have an impact would be if it allowed the regulatory uh, class to exempt commercial item acquisition from a slew of government-specific rules, Tom. That was really the genesis way back uh, when we did the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act back in the Stone Age, and then later in Clear Cohen. The whole idea was if you want to attract people that don't traditionally sell to the government market, if you want to streamline the process to get uh, current technology, then you have to make sure that commercial item acquisitions don't get loaded up with the same rules and regulations we use to buy weapon systems or other government-specific solutions. So I think that would be one place where this bill could potentially have an impact. And there's another provision in the bill kind of away from that, which would encourage companies to enact employee stock ownership plans to become ESOPs for federal contractors. And that seems, I don't know, a little bit off the wall. Well, Tom, this was another issue that actually came up during uh, Vice President Gore's reinventing government. At the time, they were promoting ESOPs for specific government organizations. And I think some uh, maybe uh, took a good hard look on that, maybe even spun themselves into them. This time, the idea is for contractors to form employee stock ownership program companies, uh, give the employees the extra incentive to Uh, be innovative, and to also stay with the company over time. Uh, I'm not sure that's a magic bullet, Tom, but, you know, if it's an approach that people want to encourage, that people feel will drive innovation, sure, let's try it. Uh, Let's just not think that that alone is going to solve the acquisition ills. Of course, it might tamp down on whistleblowers, because if you have a stake in the company like that as a ownership, <laughs> maybe you wouldn't blow the whistle so much. So it might work against what the government is trying to do here. This all comes in the context of greater and greater use of non-FAR acquisitions, though, for so-called innovation. And I think that might also be what's concerning the senators. By the way, it's Joni Ernst and Gary Peters who are sponsoring this particular bill. Well, and I think your point's a good one, Tom. Uh, look, the reason we have the agile bill and the region reason we have so many non-traditional acquisition methods is because the traditional acquisition ways are fraught with hurdles 
in terms of regulations, in terms of new processes. Things come in, you know, every time somebody in contracting does something not quite the right way, Congress reacts and we get new rules and regulations. Kind of the whole idea about streamlining goes out the door and we get a very heavy dose of accountability. Accountability is a good thing. I don't want to mean to say what we should countenance fraud, waste, and abuse in government acquisition, but we do have to make sure that we have an acquisition system that works. And when you have so many bypasses to the regular acquisition system like we do today, I think it is worth asking whether or not the system is overburdened, whether the system as currently constructed works. And that's what leads to bills like the Agile Procurement Act. We are speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And to switch to a more topical idea, we are in the fourth quarter of the fiscal year, closing in on the next continuing resolution. I won't even say the next fiscal year. (laughs) It's now inevitable, in the words of certain members of Congress themselves. And you're talking about the idea of getting a place on the myriad of IDIQs out there. And it's one thing to get the place on the IDIQ or the GWAC, the government-wide acquisition contract. It's quite another thing to capitalize on it. What's your best advice for contractors who finally get that golden ring? They're on the merry-go-round of the IDIQ or GWAC, but they have to generate real revenue from it. Tom, I think my basic message is there are two different skill sets that companies need to have to be successful on these IDIQ contracts. And just to back up for half a second, the reason I think this is important is because so much business, not just at year end, but all through the year, goes through these standing vehicles. Many of them, as you know, have a best-in-class designation right now from OMB, which encourages agencies to use them and makes it even more important for contractors to have them. So much time, Tom, is focused on getting the IDIQ contract, the bid and proposal portion of this uh, escapade that I think some companies, particularly smaller and new market entrants, may miss the point that it's great to have good bid and proposal team, but if you're successful, then you better put together a capture team on how you're going to actually drive business through these contracts. Remember, most of these are fishing licenses. And they're only as good as a fishing license as you are at catching fish. And what I'm telling clients and others is that they need to make sure they've got both types of skill sets, the skill set that enables them to obtain the contract and the skill set that enables them to successfully pursue business after that. Yes, you don't want to be like the person that stands in line at Studio 54 for two hours, finally gets in and has nobody to dance with. (laughs) Uh, A good analogy, yes. And just briefly, what should contractors do now for the remainder of this fiscal when I suspect there's going to be a lot of money shoveled through the system before October 1st? Tom, that's right. I mean, we're going to have a lot of money, particularly this year since appropriations were so late effectively cut the fiscal year in half in terms of the business cycle. I think the biggest thing I can recommend to contractors is stay focused. You have a pipeline. Make sure that you're constantly vetting that pipeline. Don't get too distracted by bluebirds. Bluebirds are always nice, but if it's all you are doing is chasing bluebirds, then you're going to miss the bottom line. So I would recommend stay focused. Uh, Keep your eyes uh, where they need to be and uh, make sure that you have a 
dedicate the resources you need to have a successful year end. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that 
and get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Moms are amazing at tracking down hard-to-find items. Library books, socks, you name it. But sometimes help is welcomed. Care.com makes it easy to find babysitters near you. Sitters with the experience and skills your family needs, like after-school pickup and homework help. You just post a job for qualified sitters to apply. And since all Care.com caregivers are background checked, you can feel confident about interviewing and hiring. To get the child care help you need, sign up now at Care.com. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.